When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I had a very quick look in the office and had to keep telling everyone around me what I was doing because you're instantly flooded with hardcore videos just auto-playing. That is a voice familiar, I think, to some long-term listeners, and we'll be returning to that voice a little later in the programme for a special feature. In the meantime, you're listening to Text Message, the UK-focused technology podcast with me, Nate Langson. And me, Ian Morris. And Ian's a little poorly this week, ladies and gentlemen, so do do pass your condolences over <laughs> the retrospective airwaves when you listen to this. Yes. Uh, I mean, it's only a cold. I probably shouldn't make a fuss about it, but you know how it is. Plague's a plague, mate. Plague's a plague. It, it's a plague. It is. It is. It is. Yes. Well, we're going to try and help you battle through this uh, this little health crisis you're, you're dealing with in your nosal region uh, by talking first very briefly about something we we discussed last week, specifically the Sky Television Network potentially losing Discovery. We talked about it over several minutes, and it's been saved. The twelve channels Discovery has on Sky are no longer disappearing from Sky. There was a last-minute deal secured so that brain expansion via that network can continue, um, and apparently the new deal means that the channels are safe for, quote, years to come. Uh-huh. So that's that's good news, isn't it, Ian? I mean, it wasn't... I, I suppose... Excuse me. We shouldn't be too surprised um, that, it, that the deal was done. I think it, the, the network is too important to Sky, and Sky is too important to Discovery. So I don't... I, they both put out press releases, you know, claiming victory over the other to some extent. Um, I suspect the truth is that they both eventually had to sort of just agree um, on something roughly in the middle. <laughs> so uh, it's done. It's good. And that's good because people were getting in touch with us on Twitter saying that they were very big fans of the Discovery Network and would be very upset to see it go. So it's not happening. So that's good. Yes, the relationship has been salvaged. Uh, long may they continue to romp together in the media uh, bed the, the fields of uh television entertainment indeed well let, and let's uh, let's move on then to our first major topic for this week uh now we've talked at length on prior shows about how much it costs to take your phone on holiday or on business out of the uk and into other european countries and we've talked about the european commission's plan to get rid of those costs so you can just go anywhere in Europe and pay nothing more. Well, we're going to talk about it briefly once more because one piece of the puzzle was always going to be to get some kind of agreement on how much mobile networks across the block were allowed to charge each other. Right now, they can basically charge huge prices, which gets passed down to customers in the form of ridiculous demands to pay things like, you know, £3 per megabyte of data or, you know, one of your organs to make a phone call to your grandma. Uh, European lawmakers have agreed now on how to regulate these costs. Gran no longer at threat, great news, uh, for when customers roam onto each other's networks across the continent. So for reference, uh, these caps will be the following. 3.2 euro cents per minute of voice, for calls that is, uh, 1 euro cent per SMS message, and a steadily decreasing amount for data, starting at 7 
0.7 euros per gigabyte initially, uh, dropping over the next five years to about 2.5 euros per gigabyte. Now, it's keen to point. Uh, I'm keen to point out rather that's not the price that you're going to pay. You're actually going to pay nothing more, in fact, because um, this is just what networks are charging each other in order to allow you uh, to just not pay anymore you roam like at home is the the word that's the term that's been rolled out Uh, but the numbers provide a little bit of clarity on what's considered fair across the block it's been really difficult uh, for what i've read for these negotiations to conclude because smaller economies and countries and smaller networks and mvnos and things they didn't want to have to raise their prices to help cover the cost of suddenly having to provide huge amounts of data and calls to international travelers rolling onto their networks so these prices are, are sort of intended to be as fair for us here in the UK and France, who are devouring data and texts and calls and things, as it is for, say, Malta. Um, now, fi- final, approvement, uh, final approval even is still required from European Parliament and member states, but assuming no currently unforeseen issues raising their head, uh, we'll have no more roaming from June. I mean, there's an asterisk there for Brexit, but we're not going to talk about that today. Uh, this is this is good news, right? And I mean, this this is what we this is what we this is what we wanted. It is good news. It's been a long time coming, I'd say. I mean, we, we've known that the reduced costs would be arriving, and we, we have benefited uh, from that already. But it's uh, it's really nice finally to be able to go into Europe and not have to worry about pricing. It, it just feels very natural and. Um, I kind of you really miss it when you go somewhere that's not in Europe, like going to America. Uh, it's okay for me on three, but uh, you know it wouldn't be if I was on another network and travelling to other countries. It gets very expensive, so I I hope that we'll see ever decreasing costs for uh, foreign use of mobile phones. They've just become such a huge part of our lives. In fact, I fell foul of this somewhat because on my way back from CES, I had to fly through Canada. And I landed and obviously had a very brief stopover. So I turned my phone on. But unusually, I didn't get the warning from three. Usually it won't let you use the internet until you agree uh, to the expanded costs. But this time it just immediately put me straight on the foreign network without warning me. So I got a a bill uh, of some pounds. It wasn't a huge amount, but it it was still annoying. Uh, So but you know, maybe one day we'll see global roaming costs come down in the same manner. But, That's going to be uh, very, very difficult to do, and I think it's going to be a long time before we get there. I think that power is more in, is still going to remain in the hands of individual networks striking deals with each other as they as they currently do. You know, we've seen this from T-Mobile in the in the US when when some of their customers travel abroad. Obviously, we've seen things with three. When you're traveling to the United States, they've got feel at home there and, and other networks follow suit. But, you know, you mentioned earlier about the sort of the, the drop in prices and, and, and just a leveling of this playing field. I mean, this has been going on for some time. If you look at what you paid, if you go back 10 years, say, to about 2007, prices, I mean, what we're, we're at now is about 90 percent lower without this being in place already than, than it was then. You know, you could pay several pounds per megabyte you could you could go to france and accidentally spend hundreds of pounds on on data i remember when i went to japan it was like it was i don't know seven or eight or even ten pounds a megabyte absolutely ridiculous i mean that that is price gouging of the worst possible kind really there's no it doesn't cost that much money to get data back it's just stupid and that's why this deal between the networks and the prices that they're allowed to charge each other is key because all of this time this has not been about networks directly billing you or price gouging you so much because they don't really want to do that because they're not making any money off this anyway this has come by foreign networks saying 
this is what it is going to cost to accommodate you international travelers. And those costs are basically just being passed on. It's also why, as I mentioned earlier, it's been difficult to get the the negotiations to a satisfying conclusion because so many different countries and networks, they're they're parts of different economies. They have some countries are using much less data, but they have dirt cheap phone calls and texts. Others have incredibly cheap data and they want to maintain that for their local market. They don't want to have to put up the prices for their local customers because suddenly they've got to increase their network capacity 400% to accommodate, you know, Ian and I coming over with our five devices um, and dominating their entire available bandwidth. So it has taken a long time and I think it is great that we've got to this point. However, I have a few question marks over what this actually is going to mean, because when we talk about data, the instinctive thing to think about is the phone in your hand and you're browsing social media, you're sending emails, you're maybe making a a call over, uh, over Skype or something. That's not the only way that we consume data. We tether for one thing. You know, you can use our laptops to, to tether to the, these devices or we have family and friends who are on data plans that aren't quite so accommodating and, and we, we tether to them or we have family plans and we have budget MVNOs like BT Mobile and the others that escape me right now. But some of the ones that are tied into broadband providers like Sky and, and Virgin, how that is going to translate into the real world as part of these new um, agreements is still, I think, a little bit unknown. So the next six months are going to provide some clarity there, I hope, because what I don't want this to be is something like there's a fair usage policy and you can only use it on your one phone. You know, if we're going to do feel at home, then we need to be able to actually feel at home. And when I'm at home, I'm tethering a laptop and I'm not worrying about, um, you know, whether I really want to download that that video to watch on a train. So that's that's what we really need to be mindful of. And um, there are still risks to this not being approved, but I think it's low. But let us know what you think. Uh, podcast at natelangson.com. And obviously, you can send us feedback midweek using at text message pod on Twitter. The follow account is steadily increasing over there. The more that I talk about it and you guys migrate there, that's where we post midweek news. We post everything to that feed that we're even thinking about talking about at the weekend. You can go there and join us by suggesting stories, giving us feedback on what we suggest that we might discuss that week. This week, we learnt a lot more about how the UK is on the verge of placing the world's internet pornography behind a wall of age checks. For me, this was largely learned from an article written by someone I think long-term listeners of this show and indeed my previous podcasts will recognise. Liat Clark from Wired. What is your job title now, by the way? Oh, actually, it's commissioning editor. Really? Yeah. Oh, congratulations. Of of Wired. In a feature this week, she explained in detail that when the UK's digital economy bill comes into force, quote, any provider that benefits commercially from pornographic content must ensure under 18s can't access that content in the UK. If they fail to carry out these checks, payment providers and other third parties will be legally obliged to step in. Failing that... ISPs will be required to block 
content. Now, Liat and I have long spoken about these kinds of heavy-handed blocks considered by government, so I spent an evening with her to find out more about what this means, how it's being proposed to be implemented, and who's calling for it. Now, obviously, if you have any, let's say, under-13s listening, we're going to talk now about uh, pornography in a very broad but mature sense. Nothing too terrible, but if you have little kids listening, this is your warning to maybe just skip forward 10 minutes if you perhaps don't want to listen to this in front of them. There's your warning. Anyway, I started by asking Liat how we got to this point of needing to legislate for age gates or payment verification on pornography sites in the UK. I ask myself that every day. No, (laughs) it's been coming for a long time. The Conservatives have been talking about doing this for years and years. There's been various encouragement from sections of the regulatory side of things, like ATFOD, the on-demand TV regulator. And as a result, uh, we've seen ISP filters in the last few years being opt opt in opt out they kept arguing over it but basically forcing every home in the country to put these filters on and now we have the digital economy bill which was first put to parliament last year and has been going through various stages of deliberation now it's going to come into place at the end of this year they're still going through deliberation but as well as covering a load of things like copyright broadband speeds it's going to make sure that age verification is mandatory for any r18 content online essentially all porn okay so broadly speaking how exactly is this being proposed uh, to be implemented it's not really been spelled out it's not spelled out in the bill When BBFC, the British Board of Film Classifications, is asked about it, these are the guys who are going to have to basically keep watch of the internet, see if any porn gets through. They say, you know, credit card payment, credit card details might be required to check you're over 18. The industry might come up with a standard of its own that will be implemented. It might be, you know, checking age through social accounts. If you're a casual user of pornography or viewer of pornography, let's say, and you might not want to have that appearing even potentially on your credit card bill, which would stop you doing it, which would kind of be a problem because on a basic level, pornography is legal, generally speaking. So that seems an issue. Is anyone like protesting this and saying, guys, seriously think this through? Yeah, absolutely. Lots of people have been against this from the start and kind of seen it coming for years in in the rhetoric coming from the Conservatives. And, you know, this is coming from anti-censorship campaigners, is coming from people within the porn industry. But interestingly, like the biggest purveyors of porn on the internet are now on board for it. Um, MindGeek, which is heads up Pornhub, one of the biggest sites in the world, is very much on board and, and wants to see everybody implementing this. And I think, you know, opponents to them think they're doing this because actually they're going to make more money out of it. So that's sort of like the porn equivalent of Google in terms of power and influence sort of saying, okay, we're going to do this and maybe then the smaller guys will follow suit and it not be an issue for the industry. Well, exactly. But I think that the smaller guys probably won't follow suit because they argue they don't have the infrastructure, the finances to implement these kinds of tools. A lot of the time, you know, other than these enormous Pornhub types, it's much smaller independent businesses or you know individuals and 
As a result of this, a lot of them you know, might effectively be closed down. Let's say a pornography site refuses to cooperate. Either it can't or it won't or it fundamentally disagrees with it. It's got this obscenity issue to deal with as well. I mean, what can they do? I mean, do they have to just switch off? I mean, the UK is not their only outlet. So is it just a case that the UK has less access to porn or is it something these guys can do to, to, fight, to fight it? In terms of implementation, BBFC said it was going to do the top 50 sites first. So maybe these people could escape because BBFC doesn't have the manpower. Um, but in terms of fighting back, they, you know, they don't really have a great deal of choice under UK law. You talked earlier about ISP filtering. We've talked about this on the podcast in the past, the, the idea that blocks should be in place, whether opt-in or opt-out, at the ISP level, not at a legislative level. So is this decision or is this proposal an admission that those sorts of filters or suggestions have failed in some way or the ISPs have failed? Those filters have, you know, they're, they're always going to be mixed in what they can achieve. They will block um, anorexia sites where people go to seek help for, for the condition and learn more about how they can recover, as well as blocking the pro-ana sites that they're designed to block. And there's a process to appeal that, but that's going to happen with pornography. Porn will get through the filters. But interestingly, at this talk I was at the other day, the director of policy at Sky said they blocked something like 4 million pornography sites. So yeah, they seem to be pretty effective. Let's get to the the meat of the reason for this. It's to protect the children, I'm assuming. It's think of the children. Um, two thoughts come into my head when I think about that. The first is that we've had age gates on gaming websites for a very long time. If you go to many of these sites as, a, as an adult, you type in your birthday and then it gives you access. No credit cards, no issue, no problem. Therefore, no real issue for a child not to just say they were born in 1980 one instead of nine instead of 2001. However, kids aren't running into porn sites, or rather they aren't run, running into pornography only on porn sites. They're seeing it on social media. They're seeing it in image search results, perhaps. They're seeing it from a lot of places, whether they're seeking it or not, that aren't classed as a porn site. So how the hell do you deal with that under these sorts of rules? So that's actually an argument that the guys from MindGeek were pushing. They were saying Twitter is actually like the biggest purveyor of pornography. And if you're innocent like me, you think Twitter is for news and trolling. But there is so much porn on it. I had a very quick look in the office and had to keep telling everyone around me what I was doing because you're instantly flooded with hardcore videos just auto-playing. Um, so yeah, it is everywhere. And when the regulators were kind of confronted with this question, they really hummed and hard about it. They said, you know, yeah, we're gonna talk to Twitter and we're gonna ask them this and we're gonna request this. But I imagine they're quite afraid to go up against, you know, the Twitters of the world because the answer is not going to be yes, we're going to adhere to this law. Um, and it's interesting because they, it's, it's, it's a very confused area, I think. You know, they've written this bill which is really sweeping, really vague, and probably should include portals like Twitter, according to the letter of the bill. Um, but you had people there who were very much involved in the regulation saying, oh, Twitter bans pornography. Twitter, you know, pornography is not allowed on Twitter. And that's just not true. When you look into Twitter's regulations, they, you absolutely can have it in your feed 
and it can be hardcore. But you mentioned the BBFC earlier, who are responsible for you know assigning or suggesting age ratings on on you know movie releases and videos and things. Are they going to have to literally get to the point where they're looking at something, deciding it's pornographic, and and actively applying a block to it or sending a complaint? Like, how does that work? You know, where do is there any suggestion where this line is drawn? No, because of the kind of vague nature of it, any R18 content, as classed by the BBFC, should be behind these age verification. Um, if they're kind of a commercial, well, they should be a commercial provider. Um, so, yeah, the BBFC will be deciding what is porn and what isn't. And I, I did look on their website and they have, you know, a paragraph on what they say. They, they call it sex works. Sex works. <laughs> That's how they refer to it. Sex works, which only contains sex, which may be simulated, will usually be passed at 18. The R18 category is suitable for sex works containing clear images of real sex, strong fetish material, blah, blah, blah. So they, they have, you know, what they think is a, a definition. But yeah, in terms of, I mean, Sky blocking 4 million websites. The BBFC says they're going to start by going down the top 50 and harassing them if they don't do it. That sounds like a really kind of analog, insane, completely, like, it's not going to happen. Do we know if this has been attempted or implemented in any way elsewhere in the world? Or is the UK really kind of leading the charge in this uh, legislative war on smut? I would say we could probably only align ourselves with China. So in respect of this amount of blocking, if, if they're really going to do it. Do you think that this is a filter that needs to exist or is it a giant waste of time? There's a loaded question. <laughs> um, okay, I think it's a giant waste of time. However, I, I do understand to a certain extent the arguments that lead to this. You know, there, there is an incredible amount of very easily accessible hardcore pornography online. But the point is, well, why do you want to hide that? Adults can see it, great, adults fine. Children and teenagers, why do you want them not to see it? Why are you so worried about it? How many are seeing it? They say too many children are seeing it and there's reports from the NSPCC last year that were cited a lot in the deliberations around the digital economy bill. And yes, a lot of kids and teenagers do see it, but I, I kind of had a look at their the main takeaways of that report to see what were actually the negative outcomes you know were these children traumatized and basically the answer is no um i think it said a minority of respondents initially reported feeling sexually stimulated by viewing pornography 17 percent. this went up to 49 percent after repeated viewing they're essentially their, their worry is that children and teenagers will become desensitized and you look at those statistics, those percentages, and it's just saying, yeah, you know, they've looked at it the first time, a bit freaked out, then they realise it's quite fun. Okay, that's pretty much what happens to anyone when they see porn. The others are, what, 41% felt curious, 27% shocked, 24 confused. You know, they're not... These aren't... What came out of this survey that has been flagged up time and time again, and there were, like, scary headlines about it, is not that bad, and really what people should be addressing what I feel is the most important thing is to be able to educate kids about the difference between pornography and real human sex it's not it's not the same if this becomes a law when is it going to happen uh, end of this year I think we can see it actually implemented it's got a, a little bit more tweaking to do like they bunged in ISPs should block sites if they completely refuse quite late in the bill so 
I don't think that was necessarily deliberated thoroughly. So I, I think there's some chance to finalise it, but implementation should be towards the end of this year. Liat Clark from Wired there, and we'll have a link to her feature in the show notes, available now at techpodcast.uk. Well, big oil was in the news uh, this week, in the tech news, specifically Shell, Ian, uh, which has said it's going to introduce battery charging points at some European petrol stations, including those here in the UK. In fact, a number of Shell's refueling stations in Britain will be the first to offer the service uh, later in 2017. Now, this could be big, depending on the scale of the rollout. Right now, uh, the total number of locations that have public charging points for electric vehicles in Britain is about 4,200. Uh, the number of total devices at those locations, I discovered, uh, is just over 6,500. And that's according to a monitoring service called Zap Map. So, for anyone listening outside the UK, Worth pointing out, Shell is everywhere. They've got about a thousand branded stations or something over uh, the the nation of Britain. Uh, so this is significant, I think. Ian, what do you reckon? Yeah, I I am extremely excited about electric vehicles. I have been since the sort of start of the Tesla, um, and I obviously we can't have electric vehicles unless we have places to charge them up. And uh, yeah, so it'll be uh, it'll be quite cool to start seeing you know electric chargers. The only problem is, of course, that a lot of petrol stations sit on relatively small sites uh, with not much capacity, uh, and obviously a car being charged has to sit around for quite a while. Uh, but I, I think we're we're going to start to see massive improvements in battery recharging technology relatively soon, and, and people will be able to charge their cars up much quickly, much more quickly, uh, and that would be amazing. I think so. I mean, the Tesla example is interesting because they have, you know, they have their own branded charging points, their superchargers. And I believe in the US, they they do have deals with uh, with filling stations, as as they're called over there, to to have the superchargers placed alongside regular uh, petrol. And there are stations across the UK that also have electricity charging points. But this would be, from what I've from what I understand, a, a much more significant push by a very large. Uh, oil company to base many charging stations across many of their refueling stations. Um, but there's sort of a not the devil in the detail, but there's a, there's sort of a sub story to this that I find I find fascinating about how oil companies are maybe you know they're at the beginning of of pivoting their business into a, a direction that in 30 years perhaps might be unrecognizable from what it is now, which is the fact that. Unlike filling a car with petrol, you have to sit your car down and wait for it to charge, which means there are human beings and potentially families sitting around waiting for their car to charge. So what do you do with that time? Particularly at some of these fueling stations, they're, they're on roadsides where there aren't lots of great shops to go exploring. What if there could be? There, what if, what if the, the fueling station of the future is much more of a family experience than it is today when you pop in for a ginsters um you know or go and browse the discounts on window frozen what's that stuff called de-icer thank you yeah I don't know why I'm thanking you. I came up with it. Um, <laughs> and I looked into some numbers here and I, I found, I, I don't really know how these compare to, to the, the likes of a, a regular food outlet, but apparently Shell sites alone, uh, they sell about 100 million cups of coffee a year, about 250 million soft drinks and, and almost half a billion confectionery items um, at charging points. And 
I think the idea here could maybe be that the more cars being charged, then the more a company like Shell and, and Total and other oil companies can can sort of push themselves as being like a, a restaurant business and a, a shopping place or a place to go and, you know, take an hour for a nap or something. I mean, yeah. you know, it's going to take decades to phase out oil in, in cars, but this is a transitionary phase. And maybe this is a way to sort of pivot that business, you know, away from, I don't want to say destroying the planet, but you know what I mean? Um dependent on natural resources what do you reckon well do, well do you do you remember the days where a journey would would encompass a, a meal at a little chef or a yes happy i do eater? Uh, and if you cleared your plate at the little chef you got a, a nice little suckable a, treat a lollipop so to speak. yeah exactly Sorry. well i do think that then i mean i sort of feel like that, that we might see a resurgence in uh, in this kind of thing if we're, we're going to have to occupy people um and obviously they'll need to be a lot better than happy eaters and little chefs were um but i could see you know something like say for an example pizza express having having a deal where there is a pizza express and a charging station and a, and you can fill your car with petrol if you've got a petrol car but i mean you know it's not it's not unusual to have a service station but they've have disappeared largely from the sort of more minor roads uh, which you would have would have seen them on uh, r- roads all the time uh, that that were used commonly to get people from say london to cornwall um, so I, I, it might be quite a nice little resurgence of uh, something that's kind of exciting. I'd love, I would just love to see the UK equivalent to the American diner because the American diner is truly a, a magnificent institution that uh, I would like something similar in this country. Um, and they could have electric charging. It'd be amazing. Isn't that what we have? Isn't that basically what a little chef was modelled after? Well, it, it, yeah, I guess it was, but the food was never quite as good. Like, no, plus like, you have to I mean, pay obviously... for, you know, per sausage and per bean. <laughs> I yeah. mean... Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, I, I, there are some very specific reasons that Americans are able to offer cheaper food than we are. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, you could argue a lot of quality control that maybe doesn't happen in the same way as it does here. Uh, and of course, things tend to be more expensive in the UK anyway. But um, yeah, I, I, there is something about the sort of the friendly welcome that you get when you go to a US diner, the bottomless coffee, the sitting around, uh, you know, the the kind of very specific look to it. Now, obviously, we can't duplicate that exactly because it would be stupid and it's just a it's just a cheap rip off. But I don't know. There's something very romantic, I think, about that, that, you know, going on a drive and, you know, having a little stop off in sort of almost the middle of nowhere to uh, to have a meal. And a, and a quick charge and they've got to be a lot less soulless than motorway service stations um and the law should immediately be changed to make it illegal for uh, those motorway service stations to charge for uh, cash withdrawals from cash machines um because i don't know why but that's one of the few places that you still go and have to pay a, a withdrawal fee so let's put an end to that well that, that was that was quite Minister. the pandora's box of opinion that i just was it was it just just a complete mess drawn from my cold riddled brain well if you have a cold riddled brain or indeed a brain riddled with anything plague like (laughs) um you are welcome to let us know what you would think the charging station of the future could offer you and and your family let us know podcast at natelangson.com or at text message pod on twitter Ian, as a customer, I believe, of the Mobile Network 3, I believe you were very excited to discover that the network was rolling out uh, app-free Wi-Fi calling in the UK. Am I, am I believing that correctly? 
You are. You you absolutely are. And you know what? I'm going to give a shout out to Pocket Lint and uh, Cam Bunton because they were the only site that I saw that was able to actually cogently explain how it was that you would get it on an iPhone. Uh, basically, if you don't already know uh, and you haven't got a Wi-Fi calling option in your um, in your call settings menu, which I didn't on my iPhone, uh, you have to go into the network settings first and update them. And then three is pushed out a little update that doesn't appear unless you do that step. Uh, and then the Wi-Fi calling button appears and then it's just standard Wi-Fi calling from there on. I never use their stupid little app. I was never going to use their stupid little app. It was a stupid idea. Well, let's uh, take a step want... back. Let's take a step back briefly. Sure. Sh- shall we explain? Do you want to explain what Wi-Fi calling is? Yes. Essentially, if, if uh, like me, you live in a house where three signal is okay, but not exceptional and you walk around the house and it drops out then Wi-Fi calling enables you to route a normal call over their three network in exactly the same way as you would with any other call, but it goes over your Wi-Fi instead of over the air to the uh, tower. Now, it's a pretty smart move for companies to do this because it sort of takes the onus off them having to have perfect networks all over the place. They can provide great service for people at home. It doesn't actually cost them anything and you still use your call minutes, believe it or not. So even though you're providing the network to them, they're still charging you for completing that call. Um, But uh, there's no point getting upset about that because there are almost no deals these days that feature limited minutes or texts. So the, the whole world has evolved at such a rate that it doesn't really matter anymore um but what it does is it enables you to make a call at home and uh, it'll be it should be as good quality as possible um it doesn't do any magic it's it, uh, you won't get better call quality uh, unless you use three three where you would get like high definition calling um and it's also um there's a point there is a point what is my point there is another thing oh yeah uh, and it's also important to note that um, you can't take a Wi-Fi call and transfer it to the 4G or 3G network. Like, if you leave your house while on the phone, when you get outside the Wi-Fi range, the call will cut out. It won't. It can't be handed back to LTE or anything. So you've got to remember that. But you know, it doesn't. It's not a big deal. This is something that EE and Vodafone have offered for a while, I believe, and Vodafone. Uh, which I am on has uh, has had this active also for a while, which I which I just said. Um, but it's worth saying twice. If something if something's worth saying, in I've always believed it's worth saying twice. That is true. It's Nate. worth and saying does, twice. Does yours say when you're on uh, a Wi-Fi call? Does it well, or, or or when it's on that network? Does it say Wi-Fi call and text on, on your iPhone? Yes, I'm looking at my iPhone right now, and it says Vodafone Wi-Fi call. So it's not doing that on mine at the moment. I don't know why. The reason is usually because it's to the it's because it's it's a feature baked into phones. Like Wi-Fi calling is is a thing. Like it's an actual standard thing. It's it's not dependent on just the network. It's it's baked into the devices. It means that the phone is always deciding whether the mobile signal, the cellular signal, is strong enough or whether the Wi-Fi signal would be preferable, and it intelligently switches between the two networks, as you described earlier. And and it's different to how 3 had offered this in the past, which is through an app called InTouch, which essentially worked a little bit like Skype or, or another app, in that you would open the app, and then you could make calls on a keypad and things, and it would appear to be coming from you, from your number, um, and people could dial in. Except that it was it was siloed, so things like your call history and and things were never it was never there was never a parity between those two. 
Yes, I, and I think obviously you know it's a, it's one of those things, isn't it? It takes a little while for companies to get this sort of stuff right, um, but it's also technically possible, I believe, for them to do call switching and stuff like that. So eventually, we won't even know this is happening, presumably. Mm. Here's hoping. Uh, it's available now. We'll have a link in the show notes uh, to the, the stories that we're referring to and, and the one that Ian talked about on Pocket Lint as well, in case you're on three and thinking, how the hell do I activate this? Well, uh, your friendly neighborhood, Ian and Nate, are going to help you activate this. And you can find those show notes and indeed show notes for all shows at techpodcast.uk. Let's check in with Tom Merritt of Daily Tech News Show and find out what's been going on in the wider world of technology this week. Hey, thanks, Nate. This week on Daily Tech News Show, we discuss whether we want a robot to prepare our coffee, like the one at Cafe X in San Francisco, learned why we should be good citizens and switch on IPv6, also learned what IPv6 is, found out why manufacturing robot sales are skyrocketing, found out the dangers of ATM shimmers with Shannon Morse, and took the Domino's Pizza Messenger bot for a spin. All that and more at DailyTechNewsShow.com. Back to you guys. Well, Ian, here we are once again at the end of a show. I feel like my life has been personally enriched uh, as a result of the last 30 minutes. I hope you feel the same. Oh, I feel a lot I feel a lot more chipper, to be fair. I do enjoy our podcast chats, mate. So uh, it's always nice to have a little sit down on a Sunday and, and chew the tech fat, if you will. Indeed. Uh, well, you can let us know your thoughts, podcast at natelangson.com and, of course, at text message pod. Follow us there for your midweek UK tech news there. Uh, Ian, I think it's going to go and um, power sneeze out the disease, aren't you? <laughs> if only it was that simple. I, I do feel like I just need to be washed in my entirety. 